Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we're going to learn to invest really good. <laughs> we're going to learn to invest real good? <laughs> really good. Is that what we're going to do? Yep. Okay. We're going to do it by watching how the best guys have done it for the last 80 years. Well, that seems a way to do it good. Yeah. And they're billionaires. So let's go, let's go <laughs> stack up some bucks. So we've been working hard here trying to figure out about buybacks been learning buybacks lately. Yeah, and we talked about them last week in the context of Warren Buffett's annual letter to his Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. And we know you've done your homework. His 2016 letter, and I know you guys all went and read it. But seriously, I bet actually most people went and read it because it's a really good letter. Like, it's not boring. It is, and what what we were saying last time is that... um, there's this massive number of people, I'm sure it goes in the thousands and thousands and thousands who around the world who respect what Warren Buffett says so much. That the moment this letter comes out once a year, they're all over it and, and yeah. taking action because of what's in it. Um, oh, like he, they're, they're buying and selling based yeah. on what they're reading? Yeah. I mean, he, he puts out um, a list of the companies that he owns, um, that are the largest public companies that he owns, which we could buy shares of. And then what he's been buying privately and all of that is all wrapped up in a really entertaining letter (laughs) that usually has something in it that teaches you to invest in a certain kind of way. Yeah. He talks a lot about looking at the accounting used by companies, which is always educational to me because I don't really know much about accounting and I find it kind of difficult. So he explains it in really nice layman's terms, actually, which is kind of amazing to me because he's the best investor, most people would say, in the entire world. And he's just like, here's how it goes for all you people who have no clue about this stuff. And it makes sense. That's what's amazing. He's very good at that. And what's also amazing is that it's there's a relatively few things to learn. (laughs) <laughs> there, there really is. There's, there's, there's looking at the growth rates of the, the company through its earnings and its revenue, its book value and its cash. Those are four things. There's return on equity, return on invested capital, and debt. Those are that's seven total things. Yeah. Then having a sense of of uh, of the industry that it's in enough that you can say, okay, if I do some digging on this company, I can figure this thing out, and I can tell you what the moat is of the company. And if the numbers are good, there's there's probably some kind of a moat that's protecting this company from competition. And then you it needs to be fairly obvious, right? I mean, yeah. it's pretty, pretty obvious that Burlington Northern Railroad has a huge moat. It's like a utility. You want to get containers off of a ship in Long Beach, California and ship them to Chicago, you put them on Burlington Northern. And what's really amazing is they can ship that stuff for some small percentage of what it would cost a truck to take that same container to Chicago. So they have what's known as a price moat. They're the lowest cost uh, of product. And they have a kind of a toll bridge. If you want to put that stuff in Chicago, you got to go through Burlington Northern. There's hmm. no other way to do it. Hmm. So um, there's different moats for companies, and you need to know what those are. So there's just a – really, we're talking about a handful of things. I mean, considering – that investing can change your life dramatically and 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 forever by <laughs> building up a larger and larger amount of money for you to live on in the future. It can come, become financially independent if you get really good at this and start investing other people's money. You can you could become a billionaire or hundreds be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And many people 
in this tradition of what we call rule one investing have done that before you. There's a well-beaten path out there. And so what we're out here to do is to try to convince you that you shouldn't really be listening to the people who are telling you, give us your money, we're going to manage your money, you can't do this, this is rocket science. And I will tell you for sure that Warren Buffett in this letter tells you you need to just go put your money with some guy or some, or well, not even put your money with a guy. You need to just go do it yourself, but just buy the index. Yeah, yeah. He says, go buy a low cost index. He says, yep. basically he says, fees are eating up any gains you're going to make. You're probably just going to track the market anyway. Right. You're going to lose fees on top of that. So just go buy a low cost index. And he made a big bet about it. He did. Which he talks about in the letter. He did. It's so cool. <laughs> and nine years ago, he made a 10 year bet. <laughs> and and the bet is that he put up he went to this there's some bigbet.com thing that got put up by one of the Google Yeah, I guys. think it's called Long Bets. Long Bet or something. And famous people have put bets up there for all sorts of things, you know, the, the first unmanned air, you know, when we'll all be flying unmanned aircraft and all this other stuff. But Buffett put one up that said, I'll bet anybody that you can't get a fund of funds, at least five fund of funds. Um, of hedge fund managers that can beat the index. What a fund of funds is, is a very confusing term. Basically, it's somebody who invests your money, like it's a fund that you buy into, but instead of investing it themselves, they invest it in other funds. Right. So the idea is that if you're diversified across a number of funds and they choose the best fund managers, then you're going to do better than if you just go with somebody who actually invests your money. Right. And of course, the irony is it's funds of funds and pension fund managers who are putting money with other fund managers who drive the fund managers crazy <laughs> by, by watching them so closely that if they're down a little bit against their peers in a given quarter, the fund of fund managers and pension managers pull the money out and give it to some other guy. And so they're trying to earn their 1% fee by just moving the money around rapidly from one hot hand to another. And Buffett basically thinks this is nonsense and there's no way they can actually beat the index. And so he bet a million dollars to go to a charity no, that he they bet, can't. Wait, I'm looking at it. He bet $500,000. Oh, $500,000. Almost a million. Okay, well, half a million. Half a million. That's what I heard. And actually, so now I found the page, Jeff Be Bezos? Jeff Bezos? Jeff Bezos. He's the one who Amazon. started this long bets. Oh, he thing, did. And it's a nonprofit. Oh, wow. I think he just like I think Buffett really likes him. Like I've read that a few different places, and I think Buffett wishes he could invest in Amazon, but it seems a little overpriced. Yeah, it's hard to know what Amazon's worth. I mean, they're they're obviously taking over the world, and, and they're doing it in a kind of a good way. Yeah, yeah. So but anyway, who, what are they worth? Buffett has know. a number of times praised Jeff Bezos, so that's interesting that it's his website. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so uh, yeah, in so the bet, five hundred thousand in right? the bet. Go mm -hmm. ahead. In the bet. Um, he got a taker on the bet, one brave, very brave guy who put uh, picked out of all the different hedge fund managers out there, he picked five fund of funds. So we're talking about hundreds of hedge funds that are in these five fund of funds. And, of course, that's what makes Buffett so sure that he can beat them. Yeah, because it's massively diversified. It's massive across like you, all these you guys. Almost couldn't, you couldn't even be more diversified. Al almost none of which invests like we do. Yeah. They're almost all in and out, in and out, in and out, short, long, short, long. And so Buffett basically said they're not earning their fees, and he wanted to make a point. So that was nine years ago. So the bet is over next year. 
and basically the Buffett is declaring victory now. <laughs> He's declaring victory in this letter. Yeah. Where he says, okay, it's game over because the five funds of funds have ranged from 2.2% to about 60% in their success of growing their capital, while the S&P 500, with nobody managing it at all, has done over 80%. And so it's very unlikely that the average of these five will increase by 20% in the next year. Um, so Buffett is saying, I won. Yeah. Yeah, and he probably will. He probably will. So that's just really interesting. I mean, we're here saying, I want you, my dear daughter, to learn to invest the way Buffett and Munger do, the way I do. And basically, Munger and Buffett are both saying, well, you know, your best thing is just go buy an index. Yeah, yeah, they are. So we yeah. need to parse that a little bit and see if that's really what they're saying. Because remember when we were with Charlie at his event, he also said, you know, this isn't very hard. The Munger family money is invested in three companies, right? Right. And we're good with it. One of those companies is Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. One of those companies is Costco. Yeah. Which Charlie bought in years ago. And one of those companies is a small fund run by a Chinese guy named Li Lu, who is going to be very famous someday. <laughs> Probably just became. He's a, the phenomenal investor in this style of investing that we do. So what is the deal with these guys saying, you know, you should just go buy an index? Well, it bothers me too because you constantly say how easy it is. And it's, to me, not easy. Well, easy and I, I, I think it's really simple. All right. Okay, fair point. You're right. You do use the term simple. I think it's a really simple thing, you know, but lots of simple things are not easy. You, yeah. you need to apply yourself to them. Yeah. But they're not overly complex. I mean, I think making computer chips is probably pretty complex. Right. I don't have a clue, right? Right. Riding a snowboard is simple. Right, but not necessarily easy. Not necessarily yeah, easy. Yeah, I take your point on that. But you're right that Charlie definitely described it as easy. I think to some people it is easy. Well, yeah. I think we make it harder than it is by trying to trying to jump over six-foot bars, to use Buffett and Munger's terminology. Um, a market today that we're in right now, the stock market we're in right now, um, with the S&P 500 running, what, 2360, 2370, really high, world record level, the Dow at world record level. Um, it's difficult to find wonderful businesses that are on sale in this kind of a market. And if you push it and you try to try to find things and stretch your circle of competence and and buy things you maybe don't fully understand, that's where you get leveled. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the smartest thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world to do is do nothing hmm. in a market like this. Um, because Buffett is saying, like we said last time, there's, there's clouds brewing here. I, he didn't say that, but there are in my view. And we're very close to the edge of the amount of time it takes for the economic cycle to run, to go its course. Yeah, he talks in the letter a lot about the economic cycle yeah. and about a 10-year period. Yeah, and, and that's um, a, hello, people. Yeah, he doesn't actually say, like, this market is about to bust. But right, because if he said that, it would potentially bust the market. Yeah, it would. Right? He's such a powerful voice. But he's saying, hey, watch out. Yeah. We're in year nine of what's commonly a 10-year cycle. We are at breathtaking levels of, of uh, value compared to the earnings of the, of the United States, the revenue of the United States. Um, typically, the, the stock market is something around 
typically 80% of the revenue in the United States called the GDP. And when it's really, the stock market's really cheap and we can buy anything and you're going to make money, it's down 40 to 60% of GDP. And when it's ridiculously high, it's up at 100% of GDP. Hmm. And right now it's at 130% of GDP. Jeez. So we're at really breathtaking levels that we're very rarely at. And they don't last long. They cannot last long at this level. But long is such a real... I mean, I could see it lasting another one year, two years, three years. Yes. It could, easily. It could easily last another one or two or three years. So, but I so, want you to so you start something. thinking about like, oh, it's it looks so high and then it, and then it keeps going up and your friends keep making money yeah. in their investments. Yeah. And you sort of after a while, after six months or so, are sitting there going, have I got this thing pegged wrong? I don't know. Right, right. Well, and which is why Buffett says, you know, you're, you're wise to just buy the index and just sit there and let, and let it alone. And most people will do better that way. And I agree, most people will do better that way because there's a certain quality you have to have in order to invest like this. But we are not most people. We are not most people. <laughs> most people are not listening to this podcast. Most people are not taking classes on how to invest properly. True. Most people are... Most people are not reading Buffett's letters. Right. As many people as are. Most, most people are not... still not most people. Right. Most people are not even saving any money for retirement. I mean, you get right down yeah, to it. Yeah, that's true. So this is not a subject for most people. And I think Buffett's right that if you're not willing to really study this, you know, l- learning to snowboard if you don't study it right, it can be dangerous to your health, right? You can break a wrist, you can break a shoulder. And this is similar, got some downsides to it. If you're not going to really learn this thing, then just go out and buy those indexes and, and, be, and stick with them. And this, of course, is the next time the weather turns really nasty, economically weather, or economic weather, and this stock market crumbles, which it will, it always has in, in mm-hmm. periods of time, it's going to mm-hmm. go down. When that happens, it's so difficult for people to hang on to those funds, right? To those indexes. Totally. Because you're just watching your, your, your fortune disappear. You're watching your retirement go away. Yeah. And almost inevitably, the bottom is right where everybody starts to sell. Yep. Right? And then, yep. then, then, then you're at the bottom. When the last of the people finally give up and sell, then you're finally at the bottom to the people who know better and who are buying in at that moment, right? Then you're, you're selling as a, the holder of an index fund out of your 401k. You're selling because you can't stand the pain anymore, and Buffett's buying it, <laughs> you know. So right now, we're at the other end of this thing where you're buying because, oh, my gosh, it's going up, it's going up, it's going up, and you got guys like Warren Buffett and me and other people selling to you. I mean, right now, there's an interesting chart. I don't know if you ever have seen this, but somebody did a little chart on how much cash Buffett is stacking up. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, this gets real interesting when you combine it with his... You mean in Berkshire Hathaway? In Berkshire Hathaway. So he's always said that he wants a minimum of $10 billion of cash. Oh, sure. Right? Got it. Got a million minimum of that because yeah. it's an insurance company. So he's ultimately <laughs> got to have some cushion there. All right, and then he's going to invest the rest of it. So between 10 and $20 billion he hangs on to. Now, in 2000... Wait a second. So he saved, you're saying the insurance companies owned by Berkshire Hathaway make sure that they have $10 billion of float all the time? Um, they have much higher float than that. They have about $100 million billion of float um, in those float? insurance companies. Float is I, the I money... I don't even you... know what float is. Oh, okay. Um, float is the premium that you pay to the insurance company 
to insure you for your car wreck or your health problems or life or whatever. What I'm talking about are, is it called loss reserves? Um, like whatever, yes. what the money that they keep for if there's some huge disaster and they have to pay a ton of insurance policies all at once. Right, right. But the, that money is invested. It's not sitting there doing nothing. Okay. It, it's put someplace where they can get their hands on it, right? And so let's just call that big pile of money that you pay in when you buy your premium. Okay. Let's call that float. Okay? Okay. That float at Berkshire right now is $100 billion cash. Just for the insurance companies. Just the insurance companies. Okay. Right? And so he takes that money. So then what's the $10 billion? That's, that's what he cash. wants on hand in cash. Okay, got it. Right? Got it. And then the rest of it, he's going to invest. Got it. And they've never had a losing year. They've never had to draw down out of their float. Um, they've made more money than they've had to pay out in the la for the last 14 years in a row. And so Buffett has got this, it's ranged from $50 billion and now it's $100 billion. He's got this huge pile of money he gets to invest mm -hmm. and make money with, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and he usually tries to keep it pretty well invested so that it's out there in bonds and whatever. Well, in, in 2000, leading up to 2008 train wreck on the economy, Buffett had about $40 billion that he, he maintained year after year after year that was available in cash, cash, right? As we worked our way, three or four years in a row, as we worked our way toward this oncoming train wreck, which you could which, see coming. Which, by the coming, way, you called. Which, by the way, I called, which nice is job, awesome. Dad. Thank nice you. job, Nice I pay attention to Warren Buffett. <laughs> and then he, he, he just piled the cash in in 2008 and 2009. So his cash reserves went down to $10, $10 billion. So he spent like $30 billion and just poured money into buying great companies that were on sale. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, since then, he's been storing cash up again. Not much in 2010, not much in 2011, not much in 2012. But recently, 13, 14, 15, 16, he's stacked up now $80 billion. $85 billion, actually. In cash? In cash. Oh, my god! Is what Berkshire is sitting on. It's the largest cash hoard they've ever had in their history. Now, is that because the company as a whole is larger and so really it's the same percentage as the 40 billion last time? That's a really good insight. Let us think about it. Um, they had about 2008, they had about 50 to 60 billion in float and they had 40 billion of it in cash. Now they've got 100 billion in float and they've got 85 billion in cash. So we can say that these two time periods are looking pretty similar adjusted for the size of the float. Mm -hmm. And that would should give us pause, right? Because he was stacking that stuff up at the end of a, of a cycle, yeah, yeah, waiting for the inevitable. Yeah. And this is how he made so much money. I mean, think about it. If you could buy Whole Foods in 2009 at $6 a share, <laughs> yeah. and it goes to 60 yeah. or you can buy Chipotle at 55 and it goes to 750 Well, Buffett was doing that with, you know, 15 other companies. And... And those returns turn out to be not 15% a year, which is fabulous, or 20% a year, which is fabulous. They turn out to be 85% a year compounded, 60% per year compounded, 45% per year compounded over the next six years or seven years. Okay, then you go to cash, right? If you're, if you're me and small and you can be liquid like that. Buffett can't go to cash as easily because he influences the whole market, but we're not investing. We're investing millions. We're not investing billions. So we go to cash. As you come to the end of this economic cycle, you just go to cash. 
as things get too expensive to buy, you start to sell off the big winners, take the profits, sit in cash, wait patiently, which we've been doing basically since the end of 2015. And we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's so hard to do. That's hard to do. It's a very level-headed perspective and practice. I'll go back to my investing practice. I was just thinking, as I have sort of become... I don't want to say I'm totally converted yet, Dad, but <laughs> as I have leaned towards conversion to rule It's one, a compelling story. I do find it compelling. Yes, yeah. I'll give you that. Um, as I've gone to a couple of events now where other value investors uh, gather, I'm, I'm struck continuously by how reasonable everyone is, uh-huh. by how... Uh, level-headed sounds so boring, but that is what I would say about them, and I don't mean it in a boring sense. But it's not, like, my impression of sort of the, like, Wall Street investing world is that it's a whole bunch of, like, thrill-seeking, yelling guys, and I want no part of that. That's sort of the big short view of Wall Street. Yeah, like the Wolf of Wall Wall Street style. It's not my scene. Right. And... And I'm really, I was really struck and have continuously been struck by how cool and interesting and normal value investors are. And I'm really impressed by that. And I think for some reason that's coming into my mind now as you're talking about having to wait for these things and not getting caught up in uh, the excitement. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's right. It's hard. I find it difficult. It's very hard um, for you to, to, to not get caught up in the excitement. Imagine how you'd feel if you're a fund manager I and would you have think billions. It's al- I would think it's almost impossible because yeah. your job literally is to buy things on behalf of your clients. Exactly. And that's to be smart job. about it. That's your entire yeah, job. That's your job. My job is today to buy things right. for my clients. Right. And I didn't do my job today. Right. And I'm I didn't not going to do anything. it tomorrow. Right. And I'm probably not going to do it in the next six months. Um, and after a while, you start to be like, whoa. I'm going snowcat skiing at Powder Mountain. <laughs> and pretty soon, people start taking their money away. Last week, we went <laughs> snowcat skiing at Powder Mountain. You guys, you got to go. It's amazing. Oh, it is, really. And that's the biggest problem with the industry is that this in- institutional imperative to do something smart and something clever drives people so hard that even when they know they should be sitting patiently. The fact that no one knows, no one has the crystal ball, this difficulty even for an individual investor to be patient. Charlie Munger and Warren laugh about it, and they really think, I think, that most people don't have the temperament to do it. Um, but they laugh about it, and they said that really our investing style is laziness bordering on sloth. Yeah, and I think we we talk about, we've said that a lot, you've said that a lot, we talk about it a lot, I say a lot how difficult I find it. And then you get to like today where friends of mine who bought Apple a couple months ago are super happy with their portfolios and about buying Apple. And, you know, a part of me is like, that seems great. Jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jealous and envious. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I don't I don't actually think it's all that hard to wait. I think it's hard to doubt yourself about waiting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very, very important that everybody understand who's listening to this that this this quality of being patient is so critical. That Charlie said that 
You don't make money when you buy Apple cheap hmm. and it goes up. You don't make money when you sell Apple for a big profit. Are you sure about that? Charlie said. <laughs> Charlie said. I'm, I'm waiting for the explanation. You make money while you wait for Apple. You make money while you wait. And you, you, if you come to believe that, you come to believe in that truth that it's the waiting that is virtually impossible for your competitors who are running all these funds. It's the waiting that just kills people when they're watching their friends make money and they're envious and they're jealous. It's the waiting part that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Because as you're waiting, you're watching Apple go from $100 a share to, to 140 Yeah, exactly. On the news that Warren Buffett bought it at 115 right? Yeah. You're watching Delta take off. Southwest. Oh, those are puns. Didn't mean it. Unintentional. Oh, good one. Totally unintentional. Good one. But you're watching these stocks take off and, f and just go to higher and higher levels and you don't own them. And so then you start to think, well, maybe I should buy in, you mm -hmm. know, and catch it before it takes off. All of us feel that pressure. All of us feel that pressure. But having been through a few cycles now, I can tell you that waiting is the better road rather than jumping in and trying to chase it, particularly now with the market where it is. Waiting's the better path. And well, and it's probably true for really like all times because, okay, so I don't own Apple. I didn't buy Apple. and I actually do own Apple. Okay. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I wanted to make you more jealous. But the point is... there's At 90. A, the point is At there's 90. a... 90. Okay. Are you jealous? Yeah, I, whatever. Okay. I don't want to hear about it. All right, good. Um, the point is there's always going to be an Apple, you know, like yeah. I own other stuff, but not that one. Right. And maybe I should have picked Apple. I don't know. There's, there's always going to be a time. There's always going to be like another choice that looks better on hindsight. Yep. Until and I'm not the sure market. That's a, that's a waiting thing. But, I think that's a doubting thing. The doubting is probably that there's not going to be this time in the future where you have all these easy picks. Yet there will be. And that's what you have to believe in. And it doesn't take much to look at the stock market oh. chart. Go get the chart of the S&P 500 and notice that every 5, 8, 10 years, there's this walloping, humongous market dump where the market drops off and all these companies that were prior to that, you couldn't buy them and you were waiting, all of them go on sale. No, I, hear, I, I think I hear what you're saying now for the first time. Like right now, it's kind of hard to make those picks. Yeah. And you're saying, wait for the time when it's super obvious and easy. When it's easy. Even to me. When Apple's at 80. Yeah. And then you're going to have the next level of issue, which is, well, if it's at 80, maybe it's no good anymore. <laughs> maybe everybody's right that I shouldn't be buying Apple. I thought you were going to say the issue was that I wouldn't have enough money to buy everything oh, no. I wanted to. Oh, no. That will be the case, actually. <laughs> you won't have enough money to buy everything you want uh, or as much of it as you want. But... The, the, the style of investing that we're in requires enormous patience in the, in the face of other people doing better. And then it requires an enormous aggression at the right time. Mm. So mm. You, you can't just be patient and timid. Mm. You have to be patient and ultimately aggressive to load up the truck. I mean, Buffett says, I think in this, in this letter, he says, you know, when it's when it's raining gold, you, you want to go out with a with a wash bucket and hold it up there, not a thimble, right? Don't go out with a teaspoon. Go yeah, out with he a says, wash don't bucket. Don't go out with a teaspoon. You know, go out with a wash pan. Go out with a wash pan, 
And that's exactly right. And what he means by that is you load up the truck. You don't you don't take a little here and oh, I need a little there and I'll see if it goes down some more. And then, oh yeah, a little more. For, for all kinds of reasons psychologically, not the least of which is when you only buy a little of something and then it goes up 400%, you just want to pound yourself in the head. Because <laughs> the, the little bit that you put in there has gone up 400% and it won't make any difference in your life. What you want to do yeah, is load true. up the truck. We're talking between 5 and 20% of your net worth goes into that thing. Well, I, I'm not going to say that, and neither are you, because we don't know anybody's individual situation. Oh, I can't say that exactly, can I? No, but that's true. We don't know anybody's well, individual situation. Well, we don't know situation. anybody's situation, which is true. So remember and now, this is just... I have no just... clue how much of your net worth should be the amount that you're investing. But you, I think what you are recommending is that of your investing portfolio, choose only a few companies. Now, this is my lawyer daughter speaking this is <laughs> trying to this keep is me the god's honest trying truth. to keep me from getting sideways with i'm not our trying to keep you from anything which is I'm describing i'm very facts. happy you are i'm very happy you are and so i will say this i'm just a disclaimer here that all the stuff we talk about here is for education and entertainment only and that we're really walking a thin line with our regulators because they don't want you guys to go out and start doing things that are stupid because you don't know any better because you just believe in somebody which is the antithesis of investing so we don't want you doing that either. Even if we're saying it, even if Warren Buffett is saying it, none of us want you running out there and just buying stuff because somebody that you admire or somebody you heard on a podcast is saying, oh, I'm buying Apple. Yeah. All right? Yeah. That's terrible. And here's why. Because when Apple comes screaming down in a next big market drop. Which it will. Which it will. As sure as we're sitting here, it will then you, because you don't know anything about Apple, you just bought it because somebody else was buying it, you're going to be scared to death that there's something about this company you don't know. Everyone's going to be saying, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're not worth that much anymore. They're only worth this much because they're not making any sales and blah, blah, blah. And somebody, Samsung's coming in with a better product. And, and you're going to be scared to death that you, you need to sell this thing. And so you got caught in the in the euphoria here at the top of this market and you bought in because everybody's buying in, Warren Buffett's buying in, yeah. and then you sell in the fear of the next market, which is everybody's running out of the market because they're afraid they're going to lose their retirement. This is exactly the opposite of where you want to be. You want to be confident that you know that this is a good company, that you know, not Warren Buffett knows. And listen, let me tell you, I listened to Charlie talk about Apple and IBM at that meeting a couple of weeks ago. And Charlie was saying, you know, it's harder than it used to be to get a big position with a company as big as Berkshire. They've got to take more risk than they used to. He was saying, this is not your typical rule one investment. Yeah, you're right. He did say that. They're taking some risk in here. Yeah. You know, I think part of it is they know that Apple has $200 billion sitting overseas and they think that in the Trump administration, it's going to get repatriated. And if they were to send that through to the shareholders, that would work out to be about $40 a share and you end up with a big margin of safety. Or Apple acquires a bunch of companies for $200 billion, and you end up with a lot more valuable company. Or Apple becomes completely obsolete by some other company, and it completely disappears because it doesn't have its visionary founder around anymore. Right. I am not an Apple acolyte. Right. Right. I can go on about this and their crappy software for the next 10 minutes. I enjoy their hardware, but their software needs work, in my opinion. So... That's why I don't own Apple. Okay. Well, let me tell you why I do own Apple. Um, just for a second. Right. Just for a second. All just right, because right, right. 
what they've created isn't so much about technology anymore. It's about it's about an environment, and they are they are working closer and closer with IBM. And if you want to think about it for a second, now they've got Warren Buffett, who owns I think eight percent of IBM, and now he owns about one and a half two percent of Apple, and he's going to probably continue buying into Apple. And you can kind of see that someday down the road, these two big companies might get together, and IBM has access to the office. Apple has this incredible environment. The two go together, and all of a sudden, you have this juggernaut. I think it's a good argument. I think it's a good argument. It's a, probably a better argument than my "I don't like their software" argument. Right. But I don't know. But just as, as a quick aside here, what we just did there was tell a little story, and we should talk more about story. Story is very important. You need to have a good story for your for your companies that you own, which is why you own them. Tell me why you own them. Then you're going to tell me a story. All right. And that story should follow a, a very clear structure. And we'll get into that down the road, yeah, we what need that to, structure looks like. We need to spend some time focusing on story and on portfolio, because those are two things we keep touching on, and, yeah. uh, and we haven't really gotten into them. I mean, we're meant to be talking about Buffett's letter and about buybacks a little bit more, but instead we've gone on about the well, market I, as a whole, because that's what's on everybody's mind. Well, then just real briefly, I mean, let me come back to Warren's letter, because there's something very important in it. Um, some of you are going to be wondering, if Buffett is that good, why don't we just buy Berkshire? Why are we even doing all the rest of this stuff? Just let Buffett manage our money. And that would be an extremely smart thing to do. As we said, Charlie Munger's fortune is invested in Berkshire Hathaway and two other companies. So buying Berkshire is a good idea at the right time. But Berkshire yeah. is a stock, and it gets overpriced and underpriced, right? So we want to buy it when it's cheap. And this letter tells you exactly what to look for to know when Berkshire is cheap. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. He lays it right out, actually. Yep. And so I'm going to lay it right out for you real quick. Uh, so you can take a pencil and just write some numbers down and go look for yourself about where this stock is right now. This stock is called Berkshire Hathaway, and the one I'm going to refer to is Berkshire B, or BRK.B, because they have a BRK.A, which costs $250,000 a share. So this one is $175 a share. And what Buffett is saying is that um, when when you that we have authorized the board has authorized him to buy back his own stock when that stock has a, a price in the market of 120% of the book value yeah. of Berkshire. Yeah. Okay. So let's just. So I read that and I thought, oh gosh, I have to Google book value. There again. you go. Did you Google it? Uh, no. All right. Tell me I what you think I figured I would just ask you. Okay. You take a shot. Book value. Also known as equity. Book value is the same as equity? Yes. Yes. Okay. So very. I see you thinking. Yeah. Now I'm more mixed up. Okay. Then let me just jump in. Please. Okay. So you take all the assets of Berkshire on its balance sheet. So you, you have you have three financial statements, right? Income statement, balance sheet, cash flow. Yes. Okay, so we're going to the balance sheet. We're taking all the assets, what it owns. We take all the liabilities, what it owes. We subtract the liabilities from the assets, and we get book value. We get equity. We get equity. No, on the balance sheet, which is also known as book value. Okay. Okay? And then what Buffett's saying is, well, on, on his company, the book value is... So the way I remember equity is it's, it's what we own at the end of the day. Right. It's what we own. It's what we own. Assets minus liabilities. Right. So you call it book value or they, some massive they call it book value 
Yeah. Because that's what they call it. It's value on the books. I guess. It's what we own on the sure. books. Okay. Just All trying right. to just trying to figure it out. So for Berkshire, it's two hundred and eighty-six billion three hundred and fifty-nine million dollars. Say that again. It's two hundred and eighty-six billion three hundred and fifty-nine million dollars. <laughs> it's like its own country. It's it's probably more than lots of countries. Yeah. All right. So that's a very that's a big number. Now what we'd like to know is what uh, 120% of that would be. So I'm going to bring this down to per share. All right. Okay. So we divide this and by we're, the... And we're on the B shares here. We're on the B shares. And the B shares, there's about 2.46 million, uh, million, sorry, 2,465 million B shares. All right. So 2.4 billion, billion B shares. Yeah. So we're going to divide 2.4 billion into 286 billion and we're going to get $116.14. Oh, cool. Okay? All right. So if we know that the book value as of right now, which they just put this number out, is $116.14, Warren Buffett has said that he is authorized to buy as much of that as he wants to at anything. That's 120% of that or less. So 120% of $116 is really roughly 140 bucks. Okay. So now we and know. And it's selling for 150. Selling for 175. Oh, 175. Okay, but it was selling for 140 just a few months ago. He probably told some other people that, and well, they bought it. The numbers just came out, and the stock shot up. Yeah. All right, so we know that it's a little bit overpriced right now. But here's the thing. Well, just on his book value. But remember, statement. Warren Buffett buys with a margin of safety. So we're not. He's not saying that the value of, of Berkshire Hathaway is one hundred and forty dollars a right, share. Right. Right. He's saying that's a steal. Yeah. He's saying that's where he would buy it. That's where he would buy it. And typically, he's buying stuff at about half of what it's really worth, which implies, of course, that the value of Berkshire is about two hundred and eighty bucks a share. Now Buffett wouldn't ever say that because he hates to pump his own stock. Right. Mm-hmm. He really wants long term shareholders who don't care about this stuff. But in fact, if you're out there thinking. I may be thinking about buying Buffett himself. You're only a little bit out of the range and probably not all that far. It wouldn't be crazy to buy Berkshire at 175 bucks a share. That wouldn't be insane by any means, right? Yeah, I mean, it's probably never insane to buy a Berkshire house. Probably isn't. I mean, it hasn't been over the years, but you have to be very patient, right? Because it does come up and down as well. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe just so you'll know, you make a note that you're going to look at the book value of Berkshire every quarter right? Once every three months hmm. and see how it's growing. And as it's growing, you can multiply it by 120% and get your per share value. So and that's just a, kind of a nice way to be looking to know. I mean, he's not going to come out and tell you publicly, okay, now I'm buying the heck out of my stock. He's going to be buying it quietly. Well, he makes that point in the letter even. He, oh, he says does, yeah. he's going to try not to announce it and he's going to try not to make it look like there's an... Op- so you said this last time you were a talking floor. about floors... Of stock prices, and he says in the letter um, that he wants to make sure that Berkshire doesn't have a specific floor at 120% of book value because everybody's looking for that, and he knows it because he's just literally announced it. Right. And um, and so he says they'll kind of try to like work around that and be a little bit quiet about it, which I don't know how he would actually do that. But Uh, he could he can do it. He'll figure it out. And and one of the ways he can do it is he can he can just buy a small amount and then let it go. And, and let the price continue to drop. Yeah. 
And after it drops through the 120% floor, then people start to get scared yeah. that maybe they misunderstood or maybe, because they don't, they're just trading, they're speculating, right? Yeah, they don't know what yeah. they're buying. They're not long term. And then it could go down a lot and Buffett would be chortling because the more he can buy yeah. at a lower price, the better it is for Berkshire shareholders. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, we, we, so we've wandered all of, over there. There's a lot of substance in that letter and I found it really educational. I want to dig I, in more. I would more. recommend that people who are like me who are trying to figure this stuff out, I would recommend reading this letter. Yep. In fact, read it for homework for next time. And I think we need to go deeper into it. There's a lot there. Whoa. Yeah, a lot there. <laughs> and then I'm going to invite you guys to a party. All right. So <laughs> until then. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> time to go play. <laughs> Enjoy the letter. <laughs> See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play. <laughs>